Section 6 of Zigzags of Treachery and Other Stories by Dashiell Hammett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Golden Horseshoe, Part 2. 6. San Diego was gay and packed when I got off the train early the next afternoon, filled with a crowd that the first Saturday of the racing season across the border had drawn. Movie folk from Los Angeles, farmers from the Imperial Valley, sailors from the Pacific Fleet, gamblers, tourists, grifters, and even regular people from everywhere. I lunched, registered, and left my bag at a hotel and went up to the U.S. Grant Hotel to pick up the Los Angeles operative I had wired for. I found him in the lobby, a freckled-faced youngster of 22 or so, whose bright gray eyes were busy just now with a racing program, which he held in a hand that had a finger bandaged with adhesive tape. I passed him and stopped at the cigar stand, where I bought a package of cigarettes and straightened out an imaginary dent in my hat. Then I went out to the street again. The bandaged finger and the business with a hat were our introductions. Somebody invented those tricks back before the Civil War, but they still worked smoothly, so their antiquity was no reason for discarding them. I strolled up 4th Street, getting away from Broadway, San Diego's main stem, and the operative caught up with me. His name was Gorman, and he turned out to be a pretty good lad. I gave him the lay. You're to go down to Tijuana and take a plant on the Golden Horseshoe Cafe. There's a little chunk of a girl hustling drinks in there. Short curly brown hair, brown eyes, round face, rather large red mouth, square shoulders. You can't miss her. She's a nice-looking kid of about 18, called Cupie. She's the target for your eye. Keep away from her. Don't try to rope her. I'll give you an hour's start. Then I'm coming down to talk to her. I want to know what she does right after I leave and what she does for the next few days. You can get in touch with me at the... I gave him the name of my hotel and my room number. Each night. Don't give me a tumble anywhere else. I'll most likely be in and out of the Golden Horseshoe often. We parted, and I went down to the plaza and sat on a bench under the palms for an hour. Then I went up to the corner and fought for a seat on a Tijuana stage. Fifteen or more miles of dusty riding, packed five in a seat meant for three, a momentary halt at the immigration station on the line, and I was climbing out of the stage at an entrance to the racetrack. The ponies had been running for some time, but the turnstiles were still spinning a steady stream of customers into the track. I turned my back on the gate and went over to the row of jitneys in front of the Monte Carlo, the big wooden casino got into one, and was driven over to the old town. The old town had a deserted look. Nearly everybody was over watching the dogs do their stuff. Gorman's freckled face showed over a drink of mescal when I entered the Golden Horseshoe. I hoped he had a good constitution. He needed one if he was going to do his sleuthing on a distilled cactus diet. The welcome I got from the horseshoers was just like a homecoming. Even the bartender with the plastered-down curls gave me a grin. "'Where's Cupie?' I asked. "'Brother-in-lawing, Ed?' A big squeed girl leered at me. "'I'll see if I can find her for you.' Cupie came in through the back door just then. "'Hello, painless.' She climbed all over me, hugging me, rubbing her face against mine, the Lord knows what all. "'Down for another swell souse?' "'No,' I said, leading her back toward the stalls. "'Business this time. Where's Ed?' Up north. 
His wife kicked off, and he's gone to collect the remains. That makes you sorry? She showed her big white teeth in a boy's smile of pure happiness. You bet. It's tough on me that Papa has come into a lot of sugar. I looked at her out of the corner of my eyes, a glance that was supposed to be wise. And you think Ed's going to bring the jack back to you? Her eyes snapped darkly at me. What's eating you? she demanded. I smiled knowingly. One of two things is going to happen, I predicted. Ed's going to ditch you, he was figuring on that anyway, or he's going to need every brownie he can scrape up to keep his neck from being, you goddamn liar. Her right shoulder was to me, touching my left. Her left hand flashed down under her short skirt. I pushed her shoulder forward, twisting her body sharply away from me. The knife her left hand had whipped up from her leg jabbed deep into the underside of the table. A thick-bladed knife, I noticed, balanced for accurate throwing. She kicked backward, driving one of her sharp heels into my ankle. I slid my left arm around her and pinned her elbow to her side just as she freed the knife from the table. "'What the hell's all this?' I looked up. Across the table, a man stood glaring at me, legs apart, fists on hips. He was a big man and ugly, a tall, raw-boned man with wide shoulders, out of which a long, skinny, yellow neck rose to support a little round head. His eyes were black shoe buttons stuck close together at the top of a little mashed nose. His mouth looked as if it had been torn in his face, and it was stretched in a snarl now, bearing a double row of crooked brown teeth. "'Where'd you get that stuff?' this lovely person roared at me. He was too tough to reason with. If you're a waiter, I told him, bring me a bottle of beer and something for the kid. If you're not a waiter, sneak. He leaned over the table and I gathered my feet in. It looked like I was going to need them to move around on. I'll bring you. The girl waggled out of my hands and shut him up. Mine's liquor, she said sharply. He snarled, looked from one of us to the other, showed me his dirty teeth again, and wandered away. "'Who's your friend?' "'You'll do well to lay off him,' she advised me, not answering my question. Then she slid her knife back in its hiding place under her skirt and twisted around to face me. "'Now what's all this about Ed being in trouble?' "'You read about the killing in the papers?' "'Yes.' "'You ought to need a map, then,' I said. "'Ed's only out is to put the job on you. "'But I doubt if he can get away with that. "'If he can't, he's nailed.' "'You're crazy!' she exclaimed. "'You weren't too drunk to know that both of us were here with you when the killing was done.' "'I'm not crazy enough to think that proves anything,' I corrected her. "'But I am crazy enough to expect to go back to San Francisco wearing the killer on my wrist.' She laughed at me. I laughed back and stood up. "'See you some more,' I said as I strolled toward the door. I returned to San Diego and sent a wire to Los Angeles, asking for another operative. Then I got something to eat, and spent the evening lying across the bed in my hotel room, smoking and scheming, and waiting for Gorman. It was late when he arrived, and he smelled of mescal, from San Diego to St. Louis and back, but his head seemed level enough. I looked like I was going to have to shoot you loose from the place for a moment, he grinned. Between the twist flashing a pick and the big guy loosing a sap in his pocket— it looked like action was coming. 
You let me alone, I ordered. Your job is to see what goes on, and that's all. If I get carved, you can mention it in your report, but that's your limit. What did you turn up? After you blew, the girl and the big guy put their noodles together. They seemed sort of agitated, all gog, you might say. He slid out, so I dropped the girl and slid along behind him. He came to town and got a wire off. I couldn't crowd him close enough to see who it was to. Then he went back to the joint. Things were normal when I knocked off. Who is the big guy, did you learn? He's no sweet dream from what I hear. Gooseneck Flynn is the name on his calling cards. He's bouncer and general utility man for the joint. I saw him in action against a couple of gobs, and he's nobody's meat. As pretty a double throwout as I've ever seen. So this gooseneck party was the Golden Horseshoe's cleanup man. And he hadn't been in sight during my three-day spree? I couldn't possibly have been so drunk that I'd forget his ugliness. And it had been on one of those three days that Mrs. Ashcraft and her servants had been killed. I wired your office for another op, I told Gorman. He's to connect with you. Turn the girl over to him and you camp on Gooseneck's trail. I think we're going to hang three killings on him, so watch your step. I'll be in to stir things up a little more tomorrow. But remember, no matter what happens, everybody plays his own game. Don't ball things up trying to help me. Aye, aye, Cap. And he went off to get some sleep. The next afternoon I spent at the racetrack, fooling around with the bangtails while I waited for night. The track was jammed with the usual Sunday crowd. I ran into any number of old acquaintances, some of them on my side of the game, some on the other, and some neutral. One of the second lot was Trick Hat Schultz. At our last meeting, a copper was leading him out of a Philadelphia courtroom toward a 15-year bit. He had promised to open me up from my eyebrows to my ankles the next time he saw me. He greeted me this afternoon with an eight-inch smile, bought me a shot of what they sell for gin under the grandstand, and gave me a tip on a horse named Beeswax. I'm not foolish enough to play anybody's tips, so I didn't play this one. Beeswax ran so far ahead of the others that it looked like he and his competitors were in separate races, and he paid 20-something to one. So Trick Hat had his revenge after all. After the last race, I got something to eat at the Sunset Inn, and then drifted over to the big casino, the other end of the same building. A thousand or more people of all sorts were jostling one another there, fighting to go up against poker, craps, chuck-a-luck, wheels of fortune, roulette, and twenty-one, with whatever money the racetrack had left or given them. I didn't buck any of the games. My playtime was over. I walked through the crowd looking for my men. I spotted the first one, a sunburned man who was clearly a farmhand in his Sunday clothes. He was pushing toward the door, and his face held that peculiar emptiness which belongs to the gambler who has gone broke before the end of the game. It's a look of regret that is not so much for the loss of the money as for the necessity of quitting. I got between the farmhand and the door. Clean you? I asked sympathetically when he reached me. A sheepish sort of nod. How'd you like to pick up five bucks for a few minutes' work? I tempted him. He would like it, but what was the work? I want you to go over to the old town with me and look at a man. Then you get your pay. There are no strings to it. That didn't exactly satisfy him, but five bucks are five bucks, and he could drop out any time he didn't like the looks of things. He decided to try it. 
I put the farm hand over by a door and went after another, a little plump man with round, optimistic eyes and a weak mouth. He was willing to earn five dollars in the simple and easy manner I had outlined. The next man I braced was a little too timid to take a chance in a blind game. Then I got a Filipino, glorious in a fawn-colored suit with a coat split to the neck and pants whose belled bottoms would have held a keg apiece, and a stocky young Greek who was probably either a waiter or a barber. Four men were enough. My quartet pleased me immensely. They didn't look too intelligent for my purpose, and they didn't look like thugs or sharpers. I put them in a jitney and took them over to the old town. Now this is it, I coached them when we'd arrived. I'm going into the Golden Horseshoe Cafe around the corner. Give me two or three minutes, and then come in and buy yourselves a drink. I gave the farmhand a five-dollar bill. You pay for the drinks with that. It isn't part of your wages. There's a tall, broad-shouldered man with a long, yellow neck and a small, ugly face in there. You can't miss him. I want you all to take a good look at him without letting him get wise. When you're sure you'd know him again anywhere, give me the nod and come back here and get your money. Be careful when you give me the nod. I don't want anybody in there to find out that you know me. It sounded queer to them, but there was the promise of five dollars apiece, and there were the games back in the casino where five dollars might buy a man into a streak of luck that write the rest of it yourself. They asked questions which I refused to answer, but they stuck. Gooseneck was behind the bar helping out the bartenders when I entered the place. They needed help. The joint bulged with customers. The dance floor looked like a mob scene. Thirsts were lined up four deep at the bar. A shotgun wouldn't have sounded above the den. Men and women laughing, roaring, and cursing. Bottles and glasses rattling and banging. And louder and more disagreeable than any of these noises was the noise of the sweating orchestra. Turmoil, uproar, stink. A Tijuana joint on a Sunday night. I couldn't find Gorman's freckled face in the crowd, but I picked out the hatchet-sharp white face of Hooper, another Los Angeles operative, who I knew then had been sent down in response to my second telegram. Cupy was farther down the bar, drinking with a little man whose meek face had the devil-may-care expression of a model husband on a tear. She nodded at me but didn't leave her client. Gooseneck gave me a scowl on the bottle of beer I had ordered. Presently my four hired men came in. They did their parts beautifully. First they peered through the smoke, looking from face to face, and hastily avoiding eyes that met theirs. A little of this, and one of them, the Filipino, saw the man I had described behind the bar. He jumped a foot in the excitement of his discovery, and then, finding Gooseneck glaring at him, turned his back and fidgeted. The three others spotted Gooseneck now, and sneaked looks at him that were as conspicuously furtive as a set of false whiskers. Gooseneck glowered at them. The Filipino turned around, looked at me, ducked his head sharply, and bolted for the street. The three who were left shot their drinks down their gullets and tried to catch my eye. I was reading a sign high on the wall behind the bar. Only genuine pre-war American and British whiskies served here. I was trying to count how many lies could be found in those nine words, and I had reached four, with promise of more, when one of my confederates, the Greek, cleared his throat with the noise of a gasoline engine's backfire. Gooseneck was edging down the bar, a bung starter in one hand, his face purple. 
I looked at my assistants. Their nods wouldn't have been so terrible had they come one at a time, but they were taking no chances on my looking away again before they could get their reports in. The three heads bobbed together, a signal that nobody within twenty feet could or did miss, and they scooted out of the door, away from the long-necked man and his bung starter. I emptied my glass of beer, sauntered out of the saloon and around the corner. They were clustered where I had told them to wait. We'd know him, we'd know him, they chorused. That's fine, I praised them. You did great. I think you're all natural-born gumshoes. Here's your pay. Now, if I were you boys, I think I'd sort of avoid that place after this, because in spite of the clever way you covered yourselves up, and you did nobly, he might possibly suspect something. There's no need taking chances, anyway. They grabbed their wages and were gone before I had finished my speech. I returned to the Golden Horseshoe to be on hand in case one of them should decide to sell me out and come back there to spill the deal to Gooseneck. Cupid had left her model husband and met me at the door. She stuck an arm through mine and led me toward the rear of the building. I noticed that Gooseneck was gone from behind the bar. I wonder if he was out gunning for my four ex-employees. Business looks good, I chatted as we pushed through the crowd. You know, I had a tip on beeswax this afternoon and wouldn't play the pup. I made two or three more aimless cracks of that sort, just because I knew the girl's mind was full of something else. She paid no attention to anything I said. But when we had dropped down in front of a vacant table, she asked, Who are your friends? What friends? The four jobbies who were at the bar when you were here a few minutes ago. Too hard for me, sister. I shook my head. There were slews of men there. Oh, yes, I know who you mean. Those four gents who seemed kind of smitten with Gooseneck's looks. I wonder what attracted them to him, besides his beauty. She grabbed my arm with both hands. So help me, God, painless, she swore. If you tie anything on Ed, I'll kill you. Her brown eyes were big and damp. She was a hard and wise little baby, had rubbed the world's sharp corners with both shoulders. But she was only a kid, and she was worried sick over this man of hers. However, the business of a sleuth is to catch criminals, not to sympathize with their lady loves. I patted her hands. I could give you some good advice, I said as I stood up, but you wouldn't listen to it, so I'll save my breath. It won't do any harm to tell you to keep an eye on Gooseneck, though. He's shifty. There wasn't any special meaning to that speech, except that it might tangle things up a little more. One way of finding what's at the bottom of either a cup of coffee or a situation is to keep stirring it up until whatever is on the bottom comes to the surface. I'd been playing that system thus far on this affair. Hooper came to my room in the San Diego Hotel at a little before two the next morning. Gooseneck disappeared with Gorman tailing him immediately after your first visit, he said. After your second visit, the girl went around to Adobe House on the edge of town, and she was still there when I knocked off. The place was dark. Gorman didn't show up. 7. A bellhop with a telegram roused me at ten o'clock in the morning. The telegram was from Mexicali. Drove here last night, hold up with friends. Sent two wires. Gorman. That was good news. The long-necked man had fallen for my play, had taken my four busted gamblers for four witnesses, had taken their nods for identifications. Gooseneck was the lad who had done the actual killing. 
and Gooseneck was in flight. I had shed my pajamas and was reaching for my union suit when the boy came back with another wire. This one was from Ogar through the agency. Ashcraft disappeared yesterday. I used the telephone to get Hooper out of bed. Get down to Tijuana, I told him. Stick up the house where you left the girl last night, unless you run across her at the Golden Horseshoe. Stay there until she shows. Stay with her until she connects with the big blonde Englishman, and then switch to him. He's a man of less than forty, tall, with blue eyes and yellow hair. Don't let him shake you. He's the big boy in this party just now. I'll be down. If the Englishman and I stay together and the girl leaves us, take her, but otherwise stick to him. I dressed, put down some breakfast, and caught a stage for the Mexican town. The boy driving the stage made fair time, but you would have thought we were standing still to see a maroon roadster pass us near Palm City. Ashcraft was driving the roadster. The roadster was empty, standing in front of the adobe house when I saw it again. Up the next block, Hooper was doing an imitation of a drunk, talking to two Indians in the uniforms of the Mexican army. I knocked on the door of the adobe house. Cupid's voice, Who is it? Me, painless. Just heard that Ed is back. Oh, she exclaimed. A pause. Come in. I pushed the door open and went in. The Englishman sat tilted back in a chair, his right elbow on the table, his right hand in his coat pocket. If there was a gun in that pocket, it was pointing at me. Hello, he said. I hear you've been making guesses about me. Call him anything you like. I pushed a chair over to within a couple of feet of him and sat down. But don't let's kid each other. You had Gooseneck knock your wife off so you could get what she had. The mistake you made was in picking a sap like Gooseneck to do the turn, a sap who went on a killing spree and then lost his nerve, going to read and write just because three or four witnesses put the finger on him, and only going as far as Mexicali. That's a fine place to pick. I suppose he was so scared that the five- or six-hour ride over the hills seemed like a trip to the end of the world. The man's face told me nothing. He eased himself around in his chair an inch or two, which would have brought the gun in his pocket, if the gun was there, in line with my thick middle. The girl was somewhere behind me, fidgeting around. I was afraid of her. She was crazily in love with this man in front of me, and I had seen the blade she wore on one leg. I imagined her fingers itching for it now. The man and his gun didn't worry me much. He was not rattle-brained, and he wasn't likely to bump me off either in panic or for the fun of it. I kept my chin going. You aren't a sap, Ed, and neither am I. I want to take you riding north with bracelets on, but I'm in no hurry. What I mean is, I'm not going to stand up and trade lead with you. This is all in my daily grind. It isn't a matter of life or death with me. If I can't take you today, I'm willing to wait until tomorrow. I'll get you in the end, unless somebody beats me to you, and that won't break my heart. There's a rod between my vest and my belly. If you'll have Cupid get it out, we'll be all set for the talk I want to make. He nodded slowly, not taking his eyes from me. The girl came close to my back. One of her hands came over my shoulder, one under my vest, and my old black gun left me. Before she stepped away, she laid the point of her knife against the nape of my neck for an instant, a gentle reminder. 
I managed not to squirm or jump. Good, I said when she gave my gun to the Englishman, who pocketed it with his left hand. Now here's my proposition. You and Cupie ride across the border with me, so we won't have to fool with extradition papers, and I'll have you locked up. We'll do our fighting in court. I'm not absolutely certain that I can tie the killings on either of you, and if I flop, you'll be free. If I make the grade, as I hope to, you'll swing, of course. But there's always a good chance of beating the courts, especially if you're guilty, and that's the only chance you have that's worth a damn. What's the sense of scooting? Spending the rest of your life dodging bulls, only to be nabbed finally, or bumped off trying to get away. You'll maybe save your neck, but what are the money your wife left? That money is what you're in the game for. It's what you had your wife killed for. Stand trial, and you've got a chance to collect it. Run, and you kiss it goodbye. Are you going to ditch it, throw away, just because your cat's paw bungled the deal? Or are you going to stick to the finish, win everything, or lose everything. A lot of these boys who make cracks about not being taken alive have been wooed into peaceful surrender with that kind of talk. But my game just now was to persuade Ed and his girl to bolt. If they let me throw them in the can, I might be able to convict one of them, but my chances weren't any too large. It depended on how things turned out later. It depended on whether I could prove that Gooseneck had been in San Francisco on the night of the killings, and I imagined he would be well supplied with all kinds of proof to the contrary. We had not been able to find a single fingerprint of the killers in Mrs. Ashcraft's house, and if I could convince the jury that he was in San Francisco at the time, then I would have to show that he had done the killing, and after that I would have the toughest part of the job still ahead of me, to prove that he had done the killing for one of these two, and not on his own account. I had an idea that when we picked Gooseneck up and put the screws to him, he would talk. But that was only an idea. What I was working for was to make this pair dust out. I didn't care where they went or what they did, so long as they scooted. I'd trust a lock in my own head to get profit out of their scrambling. I was still trying to stir things up. The Englishman was thinking hard. I knew I had him worried, chiefly through what I'd said about Gooseneck Flynn. If I had pulled the moth-eaten stuff, said that Gooseneck had been picked up and had squealed, this Englishman would have put me down as a liar, but the little I had said was bothering him. He bit his lip and frowned. Then he shook himself and chuckled. You're balmy, painless, he said, but you... I don't know what he was going to say, whether I was going to win or lose. The front door slammed open, and Gooseneck Flynn came into the room. His clothes were white with dust. His face was thrust forward to the full length of his long yellow neck. His shoe-button eyes focused on me. His hands turned over. That's all you could see. They simply turned over, and there was a heavy revolver in each. Your paws on the table, Ed, he snarled. Ed's gun, if that's what he had in the pocket, was blocked from a shot at the man in the doorway by a corner of the table. He took his hand out of his pocket, empty, and laid both palms down on the tabletop. "'Stay where you're at,' Gooseneck barked at the girl. She was standing on the other side of the room. The knife with which she had pricked the back of my neck was not in sight. Gooseneck glared at me for nearly a minute, but when he spoke it was to Ed and Cupie. "'So this is what you wired me to come back for, huh? A trap. Me, the goat, for you. 
I'll be your goat. I'm going to speak my piece. And then I'm going out of here if I have to smoke my way through the whole damn mech's army. I killed your wife, all right. And her help, too. Killed him for the thousand bucks. The girl took a step toward him, screaming. Shut up, damn you! Her mouth was twisting, working like a child's, and there was water in her eyes. Shut up yourself! Gooseneck roared back at her, and his thumb raised the hammer of the gun that threatened her. I'm doing the talking. I killed her for... Cupid bent forward. Her left hand went under the hem of her skirt. The hand came up, empty. The flash from Gooseneck's gun lit on a flying steel blade. The girl spun back across the room, hammered back by the bullets that tore through her chest. Her back hit the wall. She pitched forward onto the floor. Gooseneck stopped shooting and tried to speak. The brown haft of the girl's knife stuck out of his yellow throat. He couldn't get his words past the blade. He dropped one gun and tried to take hold of the protruding haft. Halfway up to it, his hand came and dropped. He went down slowly to his knees, hands and knees, rolled over on his side and lay still. I jumped for the Englishman. The revolver Gooseneck had dropped turned under my foot, spilling me sideways. My hand brushed the Englishman's coat, but he twisted away from me and got his guns out. His eyes were hard and cold, and his mouth was shut until you could hardly see the slit of it. He backed slowly across the floor while I lay where I had tumbled. He didn't make a speech. A moment of hesitation in the doorway. The door jerked open and shut. He was gone. I scooped up the gun that had thrown me, sprang to Gooseneck's side, tore the other gun out of his dead hand, and plunged into the street. The maroon roadster was trailing a cloud of dust into the desert behind it. Thirty feet from me stood a dirt-caked black touring car. That would be the one in which Gooseneck had driven back from Mexicali. I jumped for it, climbed in, brought it to life, and pointed it at the dust cloud ahead. 8. The car under me, I discovered, was surprisingly well-engineered for its battered looks. Its motor was so good that I knew it was a border runner's car. I nursed it along, not pushing it. There were still four or five hours of daylight left, and while there was any light at all, I couldn't miss the cloud of dust from the fleeing roadster. I didn't know whether we were following a road or not. Sometimes the ground under me looked like one, but mostly it didn't differ much from the rest of the desert. For half an hour or more, the dust cloud ahead and I held our respective positions, and then I found that I was gaining. The going was roughening. Any road that we might have originally been using had petered out. I opened up a little, though the jars it cost me were vicious. But I was going to avoid playing Indian among the rocks and cactus. I would have to get within striking distance of my man before he deserted his car and started a game of hide-and-seek on foot. I'm a city man. I have done my share of work in the open spaces, but I don't like it. My taste in playgrounds runs more to alleys, backyards, and cellars than to canyons, mesas, and arroyas. I missed a boulder that would have smashed me up, missed it by a hair, and looked ahead to see that the maroon roadster was no longer stirring up the grit. It had stopped. The roadster was empty. I kept on. From behind the roadster, a pistol snapped at me three times. It would have taken good shooting to plug me at that instant. I was bounding and bouncing around in my seat like a pellet of quicksilver in a nervous man's palm. 
He fired again from the shelter of his car and then dashed for a narrow arroyo, a sharp-edged ten-foot crack in the earth, off to the left. On the brink, he wheeled to snap another cap at me and jumped down out of sight. I twisted the wheel in my hands, jammed on the brakes, and slid the black touring car to the spot where I had seen him last. The edge of the arroyo was crumbling under my front wheels. I released the brake, tumbled out, shoved. The car plunged down into the gully after him. Sprawled on my belly, one of Gooseneck's guns in each hand, I wormed my head over the edge. On all fours, the Englishman was scrambling out of the way of the car. The car was mangled, but still sputtering. One of the man's fists was bunched around a gun. Mine. "'Drop it and stand up, Ed!' I yelled. Snake quick, he flung himself around in a sitting position on the arroyo bottom, swung his gun up, and I smashed his forearm with my second shot. He was holding the wounded arm with his left hand when I slid down beside him, picked up the gun he had dropped, and frisked him to see if he had any more. He grinned at me. "'You know,' he drawled, "'I fancy your true name isn't Painless Parker at all. You don't act like it. Twisting a handkerchief into a tourniquet of a sort, I knotted it around his wounded arm, which was bleeding. "'Let's go upstairs and talk,' I suggested, and helped him up the steep side of the gully. We climbed into his roadster. "'Out of gas,' he said. "'We've got a nice walk ahead of us.' "'We'll get a lift. I had a man watching your house and another one shadowing Gooseneck. They'll be coming out after me, I reckon. Meanwhile,' We have time for a nice heart-to-heart -heart talk. Go ahead. Talk your head off, he invited. But don't expect me to add much to the conversation. You've got nothing on me. I'd like to have a dollar or even a nickel for every time I've heard that remark. You saw Cupy bump Gooseneck off to keep him from peaching on her. So that's your play? I inquired. The girl hired Gooseneck to kill your wife out of jealousy? when she learned that you were planning to shake her and return to your own world? Exactly. Not bad, Ed, but there's one rough spot in it. Yes? Yes, I repeated. You are not Ashcraft. He jumped and then laughed. Now your enthusiasm is getting the better of your judgment, he kidded me. Could I have deceived another man's wife? Don't you think her lawyer, Richmond, made me prove my identity? "'Well, I tell you, Ed, I think I'm a smarter baby than either of them. Suppose you had a lot of stuff that belonged to Ashcraft. Papers, letters, things in his handwriting. If you were even a fair hand with a pen, you could have fooled his wife. She thought her husband had had four tough years and had become a hophead. That would account for irregularities in his writing. And I don't imagine you ever got very familiar in your letters, not enough to risk any missteps.' As for the lawyer, his making you identify himself was only a matter of form. It never occurred to him that you weren't Ashcraft. Identification is easy, anyway. Give me a week, and I'll prove that I'm the Sultan of Turkey. He shook his head sadly. That comes from riding around in the sun. I went on. At first your game was to bleed Mrs. Ashcraft for an allowance, to take the cure. But after she closed out her affairs in England and came here, you decided to wipe her out and take everything. You knew she was an orphan and had no close relatives to come butting in. 
you knew it wasn't likely that there were many people in America who could say that you were not Ashcraft. Now, if you want to, you can do your stalling for just as long as it takes for us to send a photograph of you to England, to be shown to the people who knew him there. But you understand that you will do your stalling in the can, so I don't see what it'll get you. Where do you think Ashcraft would be while I was spending his money? There were only two possible guesses. I took the more reasonable one. Dead. I imagined his mouth tightened a little, so I took another shot and added, Up north. That got to him, though he didn't get excited. But his eyes became thoughtful behind his smile. The United States is all up north from Tijuana, but it was even betting that he thought I meant Seattle, where the last record of Ashcraft had come from. You may be right, of course, he drawled, but even at that, I don't see just how you expect to hang me. Can you prove that Cupy didn't think I was Ashcraft? Can you prove that she knew why Mrs. Ashcraft was sending me money? Can you prove that she knew anything about my game? I rather think not. There are still any number of reasons for her to have been jealous of this other woman. I'll do my bit for fraud, painless, but you're not going to swing me. The only two who could possibly tie anything on me are dead behind us. Maybe one of them told you something. What of it? You know damned well that you won't be allowed to testify to it in court. What someone who is now dead may have told you, unless the person it affects was present, isn't evidence, and you know it. You may get away with it, I admitted. Juries are funny, and I don't mind telling you that I'd be happier if I knew a few things about those murders that I don't know. Do you mind telling me about the ins and outs of your switch with Ashcraft in Seattle? He squinted his blue eyes at me. You're a puzzling chap, Painless, he said. I can't tell whether you know everything or are just sharpshooting. He puckered his lips and then shrugged. I'll tell you. It won't matter greatly. I'm due to go over for this impersonation, so a confession to a little additional larceny won't matter. 9. The hotel sneak used to be my lay, the Englishman said after a pause. I came to the States after England, and the continent got uncomfortable. I was rather good at it. I had the proper manner, the front. I could do the gentleman without sweating over it, you know. In fact, there was a day not so long ago when I wasn't Liverpool Ed. But you don't want to hear me brag about the select blood that flows through these veins. To get back to our knitting, I had a rather successful tour on my first American voyage. I visited most of the better hotels between New York and Seattle and profited nicely. Then one night, in a Seattle hotel, I worked the tarot and put myself into a room on the fourth floor. I had hardly closed the door behind me before another key was rattling in it. The room was night dark. I risked a flash from my light, picked out a closet door, and got behind it just in time. The clothes closet was empty, rather a stroke of luck, since there was nothing in it for the room's occupant to come for. He, it was a man, had switched on the lights by then. He began pacing the floor. He paced it for three solid hours, up and down, up and down, up and down, while I stood behind the closet door with my gun in my hand in case he should pull it open. For three solid hours he paced that damned floor. Then he sat down, and I heard a pen scratching on paper. Ten minutes of that, 
and he was back at his pacing. But he kept it up for only a few minutes this time. I heard the latches of a valise click, and a shot. I bounded out of my retreat. He was stretched on the floor with a hole in the side of his head. A bad break for me, and no mistake. I could hear excited voices in the corridor. I stepped over the dead chap, found the letter he had been writing on the writing desk. It was addressed to Mrs. Norman Ashcraft at a Wine Street number in Bristol, England. I tore it open. He had written that he was going to kill himself, and it was signed Norman. I felt better. A murder couldn't be made out of it. Nevertheless, I was here in this room with a flashlight, skeleton keys, and a gun, to say nothing of a handful of jewelry that I had picked up on the next floor. Somebody was knocking on the door. "'Get the police!' I called through the door, playing for time. Then I turned to the man who had let me in for all this. I would have pegged him for a fellow Britisher even if I hadn't seen the address on his letter. There are thousands of us on the same order, blonde, fairly tall, well set up. I took the only chance there was. His hat and top coat were on a chair where he had tossed them. I put them on and dropped my hat beside him. Kneeling, I emptied his pockets and my own, gave him all my stuff, pouched all of his. Then I traded guns with him and opened the door. What I had in mind was that the first arrivals might not know him by sight, or not well enough to recognize him immediately. That would give me several seconds to arrange my disappearance in. But when I opened the door, I found that my idea wouldn't work out as I had planned. The house detective was there, and a policeman, and I knew I was licked. There would be little chance of sneaking away from them. But I played my hand out. I told them I had come up to my room and found this chap on the floor going through my belongings. I had seized him, and in the struggle had shot him. Minutes went by like hours, and nobody denounced me. People were calling me Mr. Ashcraft. My impersonation was succeeding. It had me gasping then. But after I learned more about Ashcraft, it wasn't so surprising— he had arrived at that hotel only that afternoon, and no one had seen him except in his hat and coat, the hat and coat I was wearing. We were of the same size and type, typical blonde Englishman. Then I got another surprise. When the detective examined the dead man's clothes, he found that the maker's labels had been ripped out. When I got a look at his diary later, I found the explanation of that. He had been tossing mental coins with himself, alternating between a determination to kill himself and another to change his name and make a new place for himself in the world, putting his old life behind him. It was while he was considering the second plan that he had removed the markers from all of his clothing. But I didn't know that while I stood there among those people. All I knew was that miracles were happening. I met the miracles halfway, not turning a hair, accepting everything as a matter of course. I think the police smelled something wrong— but they couldn't put their hands on it. There was the dead man on the floor with a prowler's outfit in his pockets, a pocket full of stolen jewelry, and the labels gone from his clothes, a burglar's trick. And there I was, a well-to-do Englishman whom the hotel people recognized as the room's rightful occupant. I had to talk small just then, but after I went through the dead man's stuff I knew him inside and outside, backward and forward. He had nearly a bushel of papers, and a diary that had everything he had ever done or thought in it. I put in the first night studying those things, memorizing them, and practicing his signature. 
Among the other things I had taken from his pockets were $1,500 worth of traveler's checks, and I wanted to be able to get them cashed in the morning. I stayed in Seattle for three days, as Norman Ashcraft. I had tumbled into something rich, and I wasn't going to throw it away. The letter to his wife would keep me from being charged with murder if anything slipped, and I knew I was safer seeing the thing through than running. When the excitement had quieted down, I packed up and came down to San Francisco, resuming my own name, Edward Bohannon. But I held on to all of Ashcraft's property, because I learned from it that his wife had money, and I knew I could get some of it if I played my cards right. She saved me the trouble of figuring out a deal for myself. I ran across one of her advertisements in the examiner, answered it, and here we are. I looked toward Tijuana. A cloud of yellow dust showed in a notch between two low hills. That would be the machine in which Gorman and Hooper were tracking me. Hooper would have seen me set out after the Englishman, would have waited for Gorman to arrive in the car in which he had followed Gooseneck from Mexicali, Gorman would have had to stay some distance in the rear, and then both of the operatives would have picked up my trail. I turned to the Englishman. But you didn't have Mrs. Ashcraft killed? He shook his head. You'll never prove it. Maybe not, I admitted. I took a package of cigarettes out of my pocket and put two of them on the seat between us. Suppose we play a game. This is just for my own satisfaction. It won't tie anybody to anything, won't prove anything. If you did a certain thing, pick up the cigarette that is nearer me. If you didn't do that thing, pick up the one nearer you. Will you play? No, I won't, he said emphatically. I don't like your game, but I do want a cigarette. He reached out his uninjured arm and picked up the cigarette nearer me. Thanks, Ed, I said. Now, I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to swing you. You're balmy, my son. You're thinking of the San Francisco job, Ed, I explained. I'm talking about Seattle. You, a hotel sneak thief, were discovered in a room with a man who had just died with a bullet in his head. What do you think a jury will make out of that, Ed? He laughed at me. And then something went wrong with the laugh. It faded into a sickly grin. Of course you did, I said. When you started to work out your plan to inherit all of Mrs. Ashcraft's wealth by having her killed, the first thing you did was to destroy that suicide letter of her husband's. No matter how carefully you guarded it, there was always a chance that somebody would stumble into it and knock your game on the head. It had served its purpose. You wouldn't need it. It would be foolish to take a chance on it turning up. I can't put you up for the murders you engineered in San Francisco, but I can sock you with the one you didn't do in Seattle, so justice won't be cheated. You're going to Seattle, Ed, to hang for Ashcraft's suicide. And he did. End of The Golden Horseshoe, Part 2 End of Zigzags of Treachery and Other Stories by Dashiell Hammett Read by Winston Tharp